All right, so this morning we're going to be in 2 John in part three of three for this mini-series on truth-informed love. So feel free to turn with me to 2 John. You should have a handout. Uh, if not, raise your hand and someone will get that to you. Proverbs, sorry, not Proverbs, <laughs> 2 John. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 13. And I was thinking about how to illustrate what this, really the second half, although third part of our study is the second half of this letter is about. And I was thinking about our immune systems, something we take for granted, but our immune systems are truly fascinating. God designed an incredible biological system that functions to ward off illness and protect us from getting sick. We don't even think about it most days. We really don't think about it until it's going wrong. But the complexity and the interconnection between the various types of cells in our body that allow us to fend off disease and recover from infections are a powerful indication of God's creativity and his skill in designing humans. But like any other system in our body, there are some key things that must be balanced in order to avoid some serious issues for us. For our immune systems, there are really two broad categories of hazards and problems that can happen with our immune systems. The first danger is an underactive or a weak immune system. Having a weak or a deficient immune system makes us vulnerable to any disease that comes along. A common cold becomes deadly if we don't have a functional immune system, if we have a, a weak immune system that can't recognize those viruses for what they are. But the other danger is an overactive immune system, an immune system that starts to zealously and overzealously attack the wrong targets. When our own bodies, our own cells become the target of our immune system, it has sometimes deadly consequences. This can be for all of us dealing with seasonal allergies as inconvenient as a runny nose, or it can be severe allergic reactions, type 1 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and a host of other illnesses that result from our immune systems going after what they shouldn't be going after. And in a similar way, as we look at this passage in 2 John, we realize that the church is supposed to respond to error, and it's supposed to re respond in an appropriately defensive way. We, as we navigate a world filled with ideologies that are contrary to God's word and the gospel, we must be always ready to both recognize and to renounce error while still embracing the truth. There's error in both overreacting and actually targeting those that are believers, and targeting, I use that term loosely, but also there's danger in no reaction at all and just letting error flow into our fellowship and in our relationships as believers. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning as we look at 2 John and as we uh, dive into our study this morning. So we'll be reading again the entirety of this letter, this paragraph of a letter. Read with me. I'll be reading and displaying uh, 2 John in the English Standard Version. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not only I but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. 
And this is the commandment, that we walk according to his commandments. Sorry, this is the commandment. Just as we have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather you not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and to talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. We've been talking about truth-informed love over these last weeks, but this morning we see that truth, Christian truth, is truth that demands action. Truth that demands action. In this letter where Paul has been establishing the priority of truth for the Christian life, he rounds out the note by giving three directions, three instructions. Nothing has been so far from what we've read in the imperative sense that says, do this. But this morning, we're going to look at three things that are in the imperative sense. Walking in truth demands a certain posture towards that which is false. It is impossible to walk truly while simultaneously embracing error. To appropriately embrace the truth is to, by definition, reject and not cling to error. So this morning, we're going to see three instructions for defending against false teachers. Three instructions for defending against false teachers. And those instructions are to watch vigilantly, to receive selectively, and to affirm discerningly. The church is to be a pillar and support of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15, it is God's mechanism for the propagation of his good news through the centuries. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And what is the household of God? Which is the church of the living God. A pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and buttress of the truth. That is what the church is to be. So the first instruction is to watch vigilantly. To watch vigilantly. Watch yourselves. We read this in verse 8 which I don't have a slide for. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So in the same way that our immune system is supposed to be constantly on guard against viruses and infections, if our immune system just one day stopped and just decided to totally give up, totally cease doing what it's been trained to do, totally cease doing what it's been designed to do, we would probably be dead within a week. Our immune systems are critically important in the same way we're instructed to always be watching. There's never a point when we can just take off our Christian armor and relax this side of eternity. We have to be constantly watching, and this is the priority of self-examination. There's two aspects to this. This is both individual self-examination, but it's also corporate self-examination, corporate watchfulness. So we think of that individually, and maybe as you read Watch Yourselves, you're thinking of it one way or the other. You're thinking of it primarily, this means for me, or maybe you're thinking of it, this means collectively, but it is both. 
Watching our own hearts, that individual watchfulness, watching our own hearts and lives is the first defense against error, unbelief, and unbiblical practices and mindsets. It starts with our own watchfulness, our own watching our own hearts, our own considering what sort of things am I drawn towards that are perhaps contrary to the truth. Paul called Timothy to watch himself and the teaching. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul's instructing Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So there's the individual watchfulness. Paul exhorted the elders of Ephesus, and I'll remind you from our first week that this letter that John wrote, Second John, is likely to the church in Ephesus and those churches nearby. So when we read about Ephesus and other places, it kind of should cue us in that perhaps those reading this letter were the same that heard this charge on the beach in Acts 20. In Acts 20, 28, Paul exhorted the elders of Ephesus, again, likely the same church, to be watching themselves and the church. Read with me this Acts 20, 28 through 30 displayed. Instructions to the same church, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. What a warning, and a warning that they've now received not only from the Apostle Paul in person, but also from John through letter to watch yourselves, watch yourselves, be internally observing what's going on here. So that's, of course, individual, but it's also corporate. It's collective. It's something we do together. So this is also a call to be concerned and watchful regarding the spiritual health of others, regarding the spiritual health of others. So spiritual warfare demands that we always be on guard, and that includes watching out for our brothers and sisters. Guarding against deception, um, Ray Van Neest writes in his commentary, guarding against deception is not only a pastoral duty, it's not just something that pastors are supposed to do. It's not just a pastoral duty, but it's a duty of each member of the flock. While pastors lead the work of overseeing souls, Hebrews 13, 17, all members play a part. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So a question to be even reflecting on now and thinking through is, how is watchfulness, both individual and corporate, and what happens when we individually or the church as a whole start to think of watchfulness as, oh, that's the pastor's job, or oh, the elders will take care of the watchfulness part. I can do whatever, they'll, they'll, they'll help me out if I, if I stumble. What happens when we start to think of watchfulness as simply the pastor's job and not a part of our own responsibility as well? So be thinking through that. Later on in this verse in 2 John, in verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we've worked for, but may win a full reward. We see the tragedy of carelessness in this area. First off, we see who loses. There's something interesting that happens here. 
you watch yourselves so that you don't lose what we worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. So there's the you, the we, the you. And it's an interesting back and forth. But first to highlight is that the ones that are doing the losing, the ones that are losing is those that profess, profess faith in Christ in the church, in the church that John is writing to. So it's their own loss that's under observation. But it's interesting to highlight who worked. Who was it that, that labored and worked for these things. It was John and the other apostles and the teachers that were instrumental in seeing this church grow, instrumental in seeing the, the gospel groundwork laid and that initial doctrinal foundation for the church. It was their labor at providing this groundwork that, that was going to be sacrificed and lost if these people just threw it away and uh, went after this false teaching. So that was who worked for it. These men had labored heart and soul to see Christ embraced and exalted as Lord and Savior. It was work and it was exertion. They had striven to see maturity and depth of discipleship grow among the body there. The question then is, what is lost? What is lost in verse 8? That you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. All the apparent spiritual progress in someone's life is shown to be vain and lost when someone turns from the truth and embraces a false doctrine. Denying basic truths of the gospel is rejecting the only way to salvation. The gospel is a package deal, and as we talked about Friday night, it is irreducibly complex, like a, like a fine watch that you can't just remove one spring and think it's still going to work. Each part of the gospel matters for how we understand and how we rightly understand salvation. There are components that cannot be removed and still have a saving gospel. So when we talk about Christ's humanity, which was what was under attack here, what was under attack in verse 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. What's being rejected there is a fundamental truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And this is just not an accessory part of the gospel that's, oh, it's a nice bonus if you believe Jesus was fully man. No, this is critical for understanding that his work on the cross really did save us. So what was lost is, again, all the spiritual progress that apparently had happened in someone's life that is thrown away when embracing a heretical doctrine. The question, lastly, is what is the reward? What is this reward that rather than throwing away what's been achieved so far? What is the reward that is to be gained and embraced? But that you may win a full reward. What's this idea? Another quote from the previous commentary, Jesus and the apostles commonly used this language to refer to the eternal benefits of trusting Christ and persevering in that faith and in the good deeds it produces. A number of verses we'll we'll rattle through. First is Luke 6, 23. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So there's reward in heaven that believers await. John 4, 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages. Same, same word, rewards, wages, the same idea. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 8, 
he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. And later on in the same chapter, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So this concept of rewards is just all throughout Scripture establishing there is something to look forward to. There is reason to persevere. There is reason to not throw this aside because embracing Christ does bring that eternal joy and reward of being with him. The eternal benefits of trusting Christ. The question to reflect on how do the above verses, those verses just listed, and you have them on your handout as well, how do those verses about rewards and wages factor into how we think about heaven? How does this impact the way we think about eternity? Something that sometimes we don't think about as often as we should, but it's all throughout Scripture, so it is provided as a motivation for us to persevere, so we should think about it accordingly. One other thing in this section, I just wanted to give a warning about warnings. A warning about warnings in the Bible. Sometimes in our desire to recognize and appropriately reverence God's sovereignty, in that desire, we may be inclined to too quickly dismiss or to downplay biblical warnings. We, we may be quick to say, well, God keeps us, God preserves us, God saves us, so we don't really need to be concerned about these warnings, but that's, that's wrong because warnings are in the Bible. They're in the Bible for a reason. And warnings are often used as God's means, God's means for accomplishing his objectives and ultimate purposes. Often the warning is the very mechanism God uses to keep us safe, to keep us persevering. We should not try to explain away warning passages when they are designed to be a guard for us. This verse is a clear call to be on guard, and we should receive it as such. We shouldn't dismiss it in any way. Yes, we do know that true sheep will absolutely follow the true shepherd. John 10, 4 through 5 reads, When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. That is a wonderful truth to embrace. And John 10, 27 through 29, yes, we absolutely know that we are secure in our Savior's hand. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. These are wonderful truths, and we are called to be on guard. We are called to be on guard and watchful, nevertheless. So the question then is, what are we to be watching for? What are we to be looking for? What are the markers that we're supposed to see? Verse 8 again, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone, this is what we're watching for, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. What are we to be watching for? We're to be watching for false teachers but what are the marks of a false teacher? Here we see two. A false teacher is one who goes beyond. 
They, they go on ahead is the language. And we think of that, it seems like a strange term to say they go on ahead. But really that is, although not how it's used today, that's progressivism. It's the idea of we need to be making theological progress and moving beyond or perhaps trajectory hermeneutics. The idea of, oh, the authors didn't really mean that. Sure, they wrote that. But what they were doing is they were setting us up for an understanding in the 21st century that's actually totally different and contrary to what Scripture actually reveals. No, far from it. A characteristic of a false teacher is that they're going to be going beyond, not only pushing the limits, but then seeing how many steps can we go beyond that? How can we go out ahead of that? And the contrast to that is that rather than going on ahead, they're, they're not abiding in the teaching of Christ. They're not sticking to the teachings of Christ. And the teaching of Christ is all of Scripture, all of Scripture. This is important that we don't come up with some sort of distinction that's like red letter onlyism that says, if it's in red in my Bible, I believe that is the teaching of Christ, but if it's in black, well, that was just the apostles. So obviously that's not inspired. That's false, patently false. There's not some sort of distinction between the value of those words. All scripture is God-breathed and useful. And we see that an indication of that. We actually talked much more in depth on this back in January, January 22nd. I would refer you to that lesson on John 16 titled, Getting to Know the Holy Spirit, Part 1, The Promise of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that much more in depth than we will this morning. But looking briefly at John 16, 12 through 15, we see that Jesus had more to say. He wrote, I still have many things to say to you. This is towards the end of his life, the, the week before his passing the, the night before his crucifixion. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So we know there's a promise there that, yes, there's going to be more to come. There's more teachings of Christ that aren't all contained within what Jesus communicated in his earthly life because he was going to be communicating to his apostles, to those that would be writing Scripture, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. So the words of Scripture are what we're talking about here when we talk about the teaching of Christ. And of course we know that Scripture was completed at the end of Revelation, saying, don't add anything to this. Don't take away anything from this. This is God's word. So the teaching of Christ is the summation of all that Christ revealed to his disciples as preserved for us through the writing of the apostles in inspired scripture. So that's the first two marks. They, they go on ahead of what is Christ's teaching. They Consequently, fail to abide, remain in, confined by the confines of Scripture. And thirdly, they do not have God. They do not have God. It's important here that we realize by rejecting Christ and his teaching, even teaching about himself, sorry, I typo there, a false teacher not only rejects Christ, but they reject God too. You've probably heard it said that oh yeah, I believe in God, I just don't believe in Jesus, or I believe in, uh, there's multiple ways to get to God, Jesus is one of those options. Of course, that's contrary, and here's a verse that highlights that. To, to not have Christ is to not have 
God the Father. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So a rejection of Christ, the one means by which we have access to the Father, is a rejection of the Father also. So whatever God someone may claim to follow, if they're not following Christ, they're not following the true God. So they do not have God. That's the third marker of a false teacher, what we're to be watching for. And by contrast, briefly, this verse teaches us that true teachers, true teachers, the type that the church should welcome, platform, and encourage are those who do stick to the teaching of Christ and do not swerve into unbiblical teaching. We see that at the end of verse 9. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Again, the package deal. So consequently, they have the Father and the Son. A question for consideration. A false teacher, one that is not abiding in the teaching of Christ, might be subtle and hard to detect. I would say rather, probably usually is subtle and hard to detect. How can we overcome this challenge? And then personally, as you guys talk at tables, are there specific aspects of the gospel that you think you need to study further to be more prepared to identify error in that area? I would encourage you not to just stop with reflecting on that question, but to take seriously shoring up your understanding of that aspect of God's Word. So the first instruction for how we are to be on the defensive, defending against false teachers, is to watch vigilantly. The second is to receive selectively. Receive selectively. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Receive selectively. Again, immune system illustration. Our immune cells are floating around our body constantly, and they're constantly bouncing up against other cells and doing a little check and saying, are you, are you part of this body or are you foreign to this body? Are you bringing something dangerous or are you bringing something that is nutrient-rich for the body? Every time they come in contact, these cells come in contact, they're checking to see if these cells should be welcomed, if they should be remained, or if it's a viral cell. In a similar sense, well, I guess before we get to that, we have to say, first and foremost, prefacing this whole verse, hospitality is a distinguishing Christian virtue. Hospitality is a distinguishing Christian virtue, which is why this verse throws us off and makes us say, wait a second, don't receive them into your home. I thought we we're supposed to receive everyone, right? And because it's just baked in throughout Scripture that hospitality is essential for believers, this verse lands on us, on us rather strangely. But we'll look at a few of those verses briefly just to remind ourselves how central this is for believers. The first is in Romans uh, 12, 13. I don't have a slide for, so. Romans 12, 13, it's a brief one. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So a simple, simple call to be always in a posture desiring to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. In both Titus uh, 1 and 1 Timothy 3, hospitality is a biblical requirement for elders. So if someone's going to be shepherding God's flock, they have to be. It's not a um, it's not just a want to be, they have to be hospitable. So therefore, that teaches us all that that's something that we should all be aspiring to and desiring to grow in that area. But it's a biblical requirement for elders. Hebrews 13.2 tells us, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have 
entertained angels unaware. Remarkable passage. And 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. So, again, a question that you'll reflect on. Scripture talks a lot about hospitality. Reflect on your own life. How do you currently practice hospitality? Practically, how do you practice hospitality, and how could you grow in this area? And what are the most common excuses for not extending hospitality? And I want to encourage all of you, I think one of the first excuses that can come to mind is, well, I don't actually own the home that I'm living in, so hospitality is hard. Um, I would, I would push back against that and say, one, there's plenty of opportunities to extend hospitality even as you're either renting or whether you're living with your parents still or how do I navigate this with roommates. There's still numerous opportunities for that. But it also would remind and encourage that hospitality isn't merely, certainly is, receiving someone into your home, but it's also a, just a posture of welcoming. And then there wasn't really like restaurants that you could go to and like, hey, let's meet here and welcome someone in that context. There, if you wanted to eat, it was come to a house. But one way you can practically extend hospitality is just saying, hey, you want to meet up and go for a walk? Or, hey, do you want to go grab Arby's or something like that? That's, that's a category of hospitality because it's welcoming someone in. It's, it's showing you, you're welcome in this relationship. You're welcome as a friend. I want to invest in getting to know who you are and care and show that I care. So, I would just encourage you all to think through as you think through this question, what are some ways that I can practically right now be showing that welcoming, hospitable mindset, whether that's here at church, using any area you have access to, and including where you uh, sleep most nights, how can you use that uh, space? So that's, uh, that's important to preface what we're talking about because we're getting ready to go and say a context in which we're not supposed to say, yeah, come on in, welcome. So some key instructions or key factors for understanding this instruction to receive selectively. The first is that then the church met in homes. The church met in homes. There wasn't designated church buildings in the first century like we have today, this sort of semi-neutral space that someone can come to and not necessarily be here 24-7. The church met in homes which meant that receiving a false teacher was receiving someone into the church's meeting space and providing daily, not just weekly, daily opportunity for error to be spread to others in the church. This would have been also resourcing the false teacher. Receiving someone into your house meant physically supporting someone. This wasn't just providing a place to crash, this was, I didn't have anywhere else to stay, so I'm staying here, and with that comes, and you're paying for my meals, and you're paying for, you're, you're taking care of all the needs that I have, so I can spend the rest of my day going out and spreading heresy, and that, therefore, you become basically an economic partner with that false teacher. So this would have been functionally platforming the false teacher, it would have been giving them a space to spread those lies, and it would have been giving them resources to further extend that message. And lastly, having someone stay with you would likely have indicated some level of agreement. Others would have perceived that as, oh, I guess if they're staying with so-and-so, they must be all right. 
There would have been some level of agreement communicated. This idea of partnership would have been promoting confusion within the church. So I think we kind of get this in some senses. There's, there's ways in which we don't, it doesn't directly correspond culturally. But imagine you get a Facebook friend request from someone that you don't really recognize, you don't really know them, but then you check and you see, oh, they're mutual friends with so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. I respect all of them, they must be a legit person. Or maybe when you get a, uh, someone's account has been hacked and they request to be your friend, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm already friends with them. And you'll like, click on their profile, like zero mutual friends. I'm like, aha, imposter. And then you should always report those, by the way, that is how those accounts get shut down. But the same kind of dynamic is essentially at play in the church here. It's, it's a matter of networking that's happening, and when it's, oh, they stayed with so-and-so, they must be legit, because it's all a part of how we're watching ourselves and watching out for each other and not wanting to do something that could potentially cause someone else to stumble. So is this verse condemning hospitality? No, but it is demanding wisdom and truth-informed love. Again, that's what we've called this series, truth-informed love. It's not just a blanket love that says, come one, come all. Yes, you can stay with me. Sure, you can say whatever you want. Yeah, here's the microphone. We love you, so preach away. No, it's truth-informed love. It's love that cares about the clear proclamation of that which is accurate. A quote from the Expositor's Bible Commentary, great care should be exercised before applying such a radical withholding of hospitality from anyone. For the elder that... John writing this, it was applied only to anti-Christians who were committed to destroying the faith of the community. The issue involved more than disagreements in interpretation or personal misunderstandings among members of the body of Christ. It was a radical and clearly defined unbelief, and it involved active and aggressive promotion of perversions of the truth and practice that struck to the heart of Christianity." So this is not merely, oh, I'm not going to have them over for lunch. I don't really like them that much. That, no, this, this doesn't get you off the hook for extending hospitality to those that are hard to like, agree with. It does say that if someone's actively against the truth of God's word, actively against the gospel, we don't just pretend that we're on the same plane. We don't just pretend that they have an equal standing before God based on the message they're carrying. Gospel clarity matters. Gospel clarity matters. If doctrine didn't matter, then this response toward false teachers is way too harsh, which is why this sounds harsh today, because doctrine is downplayed. But doctrine does matter. It's a matter of life and death that the gospel not be disassembled and dismantled by falsehood, because these were soul-damning errors. These were not just frilly, take-it-or-leave-it aspects of the gospel. This is central to what God has communicated to us. And then hosting wasn't just a friendly gesture. It was how someone was provided for. This home that they were being welcomed into became their base of operations. So, as a general principle, we should be characterized by a desire to extend hospitality to all people. But we must also balance that with Scripture's call to not confuse the gospel message and our testimony by partnership and fellowship with sin. 2 Corinthians hits this in chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Often this is referenced in don't date non-believers. It's applicable for that. 
but it's also applicable for any category of partnership in which there could be confusion regarding the truth of the message. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Another passage in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13 that highlights there are categories of people that we don't want to float around. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Clarification, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with someone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So again, we must recognize the difference between evangelistically engaging the lost, evangelistically engaging the lost, the difference between that and correctively engaging false teachers and disobedient professing Christians. There's a great difference between engaging with, befriending even, and seeking to share the good news with those that do not have it. And there's a difference between that and just embracing someone that says, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian, but yet rejects either key aspects of the gospel or lives very contrary to what God's word would expect of a believer. So question, why is it dangerous to warmly relate as though family to a person who is professing to be a Christian, but who is actually disobedient and living in sin or someone who's teaching lies about Jesus? How does that confuse both other Christians, those in the church, and how does it confuse those outside, non-believers? So, those are the first two instructions. We're to be watching vigilantly. We're to be receiving selectively. And lastly, we're to be affirming discerningly. Affirm discerningly. Second half of verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So, again, back to the viruses. Did you know that viruses cannot reproduce on their own? We think of, obviously, a lot of our cells, they can reproduce on their own, but viruses, they can't reproduce without actually coming up against another cell and utilizing and basically hijacking that cell's machinery to reproduce the, the, the virus. So rather than just producing themselves, the viruses reproduce when granted access to a cell. They then use that cell's own protein synthesis pathways to make more viruses. If they had not been granted access to that cell in the first place, they would not be able to produce more viruses. Furthermore, when a virus attaches to a cell and starts producing viruses, it does that basically pumping this cell full of viruses until the, virus, or the, the cell itself ruptures, and that cell is destroyed. But not only is that cell destroyed, now that cell has just been used to reproduce the virus. I think the illustration is obvious. Yes, it's bad news for the cell, and it's bad news for all, because that cell became, in an indirect way, the means for killing and infecting other neighboring cells. When we think about greeting and affirming and welcoming and granting access to, giving affirmation to, even, false teaching, we start to realize why that warning in verse 11 is so serious. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So what's in a greeting? We don't think of greetings near as formally today, 
But culturally, a greeting here was not merely acknowledging someone's humanness, saying, hey, how's it going? That's a, a basic hello on the street is just acknowledging someone's humanity. But this was an affirmation of brotherhood, of fellowship, and of partnership. This sort of greeting is not just a hello, it's a, hey, you're with us sort of greeting. To extend a greeting was to confuse like-mindedness and cooperation, was to confess like-mindedness and cooperation. It implied that there was a familial bond, that they were a part of the Christian community, both between the greeter and the greeted, there was this, this bond and partnership. There's a huge difference between a hello and the warm reception that communicates, we're on the same page, brother. Today, rather than a greeting culture, we have a more formalized means of communicating that we affirm something, whether that means signing a a statement of faith or um, joining in a collaborative ministry effort or maybe being asked to partner with certain missionaries, all of these claiming to do gospel work. But in all of these relationships, we have to be very discerning to ensure that we are not actually endorsing false teaching in the process whether that be individually, ourselves, as we think through how can we use our financial resources to support missionaries, or as we think corporately, what sort of activities, events, ministries, quote-unquote, will we partner with? All these things flow from this sort of decision-making. So why does affirmation bring guilt? Why affirmation brings guilt? We already, the illustration of the the virus kind of helps us to see that, that by affirming, by welcoming, that church then becomes a host for this error that multiplies, spreads, and infects others. But affirming and endorsing a false teacher brings guilt on the person providing the endorsement, because by backing their ministry and affirming their message, one actually is partnering with their ministry. When we send out missionaries, we do not merely support them in prayer, we do not merely support them in financial matters, but we actually partner with them in the actual ministry. This is a tremendous joy on the positive end, is that we get to stand with those on the other side of the globe, really, and support them. But we also become sharers and we work with them as they teach. We become fellow workers in their efforts to spread the gospel. Philippians 1, 3 through 5 highlights the positive end of this, where Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Your partnership in the gospel. The converse is true, though. If we send someone out with a false message about Christ, we become guilty of the rotten fruit that is then harvested because of that rotten message. So practically, if we want to avoid the guilt associated with wicked actions, if you wouldn't do that action, don't affirm someone who's doing that action. And the same is true in teaching a twisted, damning, heretical gospel. You don't want to affirm someone in that work because you then become a partner with them. So we should affirm the actions of others cautiously. This has certainly significant implications for how we as a church relate to interfaith movements and Um, organizations and efforts where there seems to be partnership, there seems to be like-mindedness, but if the message is starkly opposed, then we, we risk confusing what the message is that God has given us. So if someone's not preaching the true gospel, we do not want to pretend that we have the same objective as them by endorsing their ministry objectives. So in reflection, why does affirming New Testament, why does affirming, that is New Testament greeting, a false teacher result in personal guilt for their evil deeds and deception? How does the warning of verse 11, 
how does that warning give us pause regarding endorsing someone or something that we don't really know their message? This doesn't only factor in on those that we, we know the message is wrong, but it, it challenges us to, to know what the message is. So how does this factor in when we don't really know the message? So those are the three instructions for how to respond, how to defend against false teaching. And briefly signing off, John just kind of ends abruptly and he just says, though I have much more to write to you, he has more to say, I'd rather not scripture for the church today. This is the letter that was preserved for us. So John also connects face-to-face communication with joy. Though he was certainly happy to use the technology available for him today, he knows that that's a poor substitute for in-person fellowship, in-person communication. So as we wrap up this series on 2 John over the last three weeks, in this short survey of John's second letter, second, John's second letter, we've been able to see from multiple different angles just how important truth is to the way that we live as Christians. Fundamentally, truth is supposed to inform the way that we love and the way that we live. Truth impacts our lives in countless ways. Truth is the way in which the, the, the road that we're supposed to walk as we relate to others. Truth is to be guarded as the treasure that it is and also necessitates being watchful and responsive to that which is contrary to the truth. Because our love is to be informed by the truth, we will be cautious in our relationship. We must be cautious in our relationship that that which is false and that which is uh, contrary to the gospel is not endorsed by our conduct. And of course, we always have to be motivated by love and desiring all to come to a knowledge of the truth. We're called to hold fast to the truth that we have found in Christ and his precious word to us. I will close our time in prayer and then invite you all to continue and just look back through those questions together. Maybe not hit all of them, but discuss at least a handful at tables uh, together before you head out. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is true. Without it, we would be at a loss guessing to figure out that which is according to your will, that which is true in the midst of a world of falsehood. So thank you, Lord, for truth. Thank you that we don't have to be um, guessing what it is. Lord, for each of us, I just ask that you would give us zeal in being watchful and careful in our own lives and also in watching out for those around us, that you'd help us to be receiving discerningly, to not be... um, to not just be uh, blind to these errors around us, but to be selective in what sort of things we partner with and that you'd help us to be wise in who and what we affirm, seeking in everything you've given us, both our financial resources and in our time and relational resources, that you would give us the energy and the zeal to be encouraging those that are walking in the truth, encouraging those that seek to honor you with their lives and also give us wisdom and skill in articulating the truth to those that don't yet know you, that don't have a saving relationship with you. We need your help in that. So again, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this book. We lift this day up to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.